Greetings and salutations. Hello and welcome to this edition of Everyday Ignatian. We always begin each episode by reciting a prayer called the Angelus. If you are not familiar with the Angelus, that is okay, because I have included the link in the show notes. So if you haven't done so already, I invite you to go into those show notes and open up that link so that we can pray together. Thank you again for joining us and enjoy the episode. God bless you all. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Ghost. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to thy word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech thee, O Lord, thy grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ thy Son was made known by the message of an angel, may be brought, by his passion and cross, to the glory of his resurrection. Through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Sacred Heart of Jesus, have mercy on us. All holy angels, pray for us. Society of Jesus, pray for us. Jesus, meek and humble of heart, make our hearts like unto thy heart. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hello, everyone, and welcome uh, today for this week's edition of Everyday Ignatian. I hope you are all doing rather well. This week, remember, is part two of our mini-series, For the Love of the Liturgy. And this week, we're going to dive into architecture. So last week, we talked about art, right, and the beautiful Baroque frescoes and sculptures and paintings that the Jesuits painted their churches in, and they still do in many parts of the world today. And every single masterpiece, though, in order for it to be called properly a masterpiece, needs a frame. You think of Da Vinci's Mona Lisa, think of Cezanne's card players. Every great painting needs to be framed in order to be considered a true masterpiece, a complete masterpiece. So too the same is true um, with architecture, Baroque architecture especially. Baroque architecture, and uh, which is again the style of the Jesuits is Baroque, um, is what frames the masterpiece. But what's interesting is that the masterpiece itself is not the paintings, the sculptures, the frescoes. The greatest, the, the masterpiece itself is far greater than those because the architecture itself frames the greatest piece of art ever made, and that is, of course, the Holy Eucharist. So we're going to be talking this week about how Baroque architecture really is the, dare I say, perfect style of architecture for the Eucharist because it frames it so elegantly. 
I want to begin uh, with a piece from our friends at Liturgical Arts Journal, um, author Sean Tribe, who does, again, great work in, at, at LAJ, um, writes this about Baroque. Quote, it was in this Baroque period that we enter into a design that many today would consider synonymous with a traditional arrangement, namely a central nave leading toward a high altar with the tabernacle situated centrally, along with various chapels going down the sides of the church building. The advent of Baroque marks an evolution, not a rupture. In many regards, one might say that the classical basilica was more pontifically oriented in its arrangement i.e. Eucharistic reservation separated from the altar, the pontifical throne centrally positioned, etc. While the counter-reformation designs tended toward what would become a more typical parish church arrangement, with a high altar and its adjoined reredos and tabernacle taking center stage. Of course, this linkage between the altar of sacrifice and the tabernacle for Eucharistic reservation was quite purposeful as a response to contemporary Protestant objections to the Mass as a representation of the sacrifice of Calvary Act in the, Eucharist as the, in the Eucharist as the literal body and blood of Christ. This evolution was meant to accentuate and reflect these teachings, once again definitively taught by the Council of Trent, unquote. And that is again Sean Tribe at the Liturgical Arts Journal. To give further context to this, I want to return once again to the Council of Trent. Um, the most important session of all of all 20-something, there are over 20 sessions of the Council of Trent, 25 if I remember correctly, uh, but the most important of all of them was session 13. Why? Because it was in that 13th session of, of trend that the church officially responded to those Protestant objections that the Eucharist is just a symbol and not literally the body and blood of Christ. I'm going to read this quote from um, Trent now. This is just a snippet of what they have to say regarding the Eucharist. And this is going to set the stage for why Baroque architecture is, dare I say, the perfect style for uh, for uh, the Eucharist. as a It is a Eucharistic style, truly. The Council of Trent in the 13th session says this, quote, First of all, the Holy Church Council, the Holy Council teaches and openly and plainly professes that after the consecration of the bread and wine, our Lord Jesus Christ, true God and true man, is truly, really, and substantially contained in the August Sacrament of the Holy Eucharist, under the appearance of those sensible things. For there is no repugnance in this that our Savior sits always at the right hand of the Father in heaven, according to the natural mode of existing, and yet is in many other places sacramentally present to us in his own substance by manner of existence which, though we can scarcely express in words, yet with our understanding illumined by faith, we can conceive and ought most firmly to believe is possible to God. For for thus all our forefathers, as many as we as were in the true Church of Christ, and who treated of this most holy sacrament, have most openly professed that our Redeemer instituted this wonderful sacrament at the Last Supper, when, after blessing and breaking uh, blessing the, the bread and wine, he testified in clear and definite terms that he gives them his own gives them his own body and his own blood. Since these words, recorded by the evangelists and afterwards repeated by Saint Paul, embody that proper and clearest meaning in which they were understood by the fathers, is a most contemptible action on the part of some contentious and wicked men to twist them into fictitious, in, uh, fictitious and imaginary tropes by which the truth of the flesh and blood of Christ is denied, contrary to the universal sense of the Church, which, as the pillar and ground of truth, recognizes with a mind ever grateful and unforgetting this most excellent favor of Christ, has detested as satanical 
these untruths devised by impious men. The Council of Trent goes on, quote, But since Christ our Redeemer declared that our declared that to be truly his own body declared that to be truly his own body which he offered under the form of bread, it has therefore always been a firm belief in the Church of God, and this holy council now declares it anew, that by the consecration of the, the bread and wine a change is brought about of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord, and the whole substance of the wine is the substance of his blood. This change the Holy, the Holy Catholic Church properly and appropriately calls transubstantiation. There is therefore no room for doubt that all the faithful of Christ may, in accordance with a custom always received in the, in the Catholic Church, give to this most holy sacrament in veneration the, the worship of Latria, which is due to the true God. Neither is it to be less adored for the reason that it was instituted by Christ the Lord in order to be received. For we believe that in the, in the same God, for we believe that in, that in it the same God is present, of whom the, the Eternal Father, in introducing him into the world, says, Let all the angels of God adore him, whom the Magi falling down adored, who finally, as the scriptures testify, was adored by the apostles in Galilee. Unquote. And that is again the Council of Trent, the 13th session. I understand that quote is rather lengthy, and I apologize for perhaps being a little too lengthy, but I say this full quote to illustrate a point that the Baroque style was the gen was inspired and came from uh, was a response to the church uh, the church's calls at Trent uh, to really make the Eucharist the center of our lives. In fact, uh, the Council of Trent's de declarations on the Eucharist are so important. I've actually included them at the bottom of this session of uh, this. Um, at the bottom of this of this week's edition. So if you want to, at any point in time, if you wanted to take a look at it in full, it is all available to you at the bottom of this week's edition. Just click on the link and it will take you to it. But much like, again, last week when we discussed how the Jesuits sprung into action to make the truths of the faith accessible to everyone through art, so too they once again sprang into motion to refute these Protestant heresies. And I love what the council says here, these satanical untruths devised by impious men. And they did so by, again, architecture, an architecture that accentuates and shows forth the splendor of the Eucharistic sacrifice, that frames the Eucharistic sacrifice. So truly it is, Baroque architecture is architecture for the bread of angels. Now, um, Sean Tribe in his quote earlier talked about the pontifically oriented medieval style versus the Eucharistically oriented Baroque style. In this week's edition, I invite you, to, if you haven't opened it up yet, to I compare and contrast medieval architecture with Baroque architecture, the Jesuit with the uh, Church of St. Clement, and both of which are in Rome. And I want you to just, if you haven't done so already, or maybe after this uh, week's edition, uh, this podcast, just to take a look at it. And I want you to notice the differences between those two styles. When you look at the medieval architecture and you describe it, two words come to mind, at least for me, and I say these with the utmost respect to the medieval styles. Namely, the, the words are obstruction and barrier. And again, I say them with the utmost respect to the medieval styles and the medieval masters who designed these churches. But if you look at, say, the Church of St. Clement, there's so much here that is a barrier to the tabernacle. First of all, to be honest, looking at this image, I can't even see where the tabernacle is. I can't even identify where it is. I don't know if it's in a side chapel or somewhere else. I can see the the cathedral, the church, the 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 what's the word, the the throne behind the altar, but I can't see anything else. 
in the nave itself, the seating area itself, where the congregation usually sits, they place the choir, which is a little bizarre, but I digress. There's not even a there's not even a communion rail. It's more like a wall behind it as well uh, that you have to approach. There's very much many barriers in which you have to receive the Eucharist and uh, and say uh, look and behold the Eucharistic sacrifice. Compare and contrast that with the Jesuit Baroque style. Compare and contrast that with the Jesu or the San Ignacio, right? We see the exact opposite. The tabernacle is gigantic in the, San Ign uh, in, the, in the Jesu, and it's right in the center of the church, right behind the altar. We see a long, wide aisle leading directly toward it. Uh, we see rows and rows of pews, something you don't see in the Church of St. Clement, the medieval style, where countless uh, congregates, countless people can come in and adore Christ at any point in time. Uh, and, and the choir itself has been moved to its choir loft. I want to reiterate once again with these things in mind, those, that were the, those words by Sean Tribe, which again, I think, perfectly exemplify this Baroque style versus the medieval style. Quote, In many regards, one might say that the classical basilica, the medieval style, was more pontifically oriented in its arrangement, while the Counter-Reformation designs tended toward what would become a more typical parish church arrangement with the altar and its adjoined reredos and tabernacle taking center stage. Excuse me. The linkage between the altar of sacrifice and the tabernacle for Eucharistic reservation was quite purposeful as a representation of the Eucharist as the literal body and blood of Christ, unquote. And that is, once again, Sean Tribe. We see, once again, now, uh, I want to go back to what I said earlier. Bar the Baroque style was a response to the Protestant heresies and objections that the Eucharist is just a symbol. When it is not, it is truly the body and blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, truly and substantially present under the guise of bread and wine. And through the Baroque style, through Baroque architecture, the Jesuits are able to illumine the minds of the lay people, of the lay, the illiterate, people who didn't know, um, in a way that was visual and they could easily understand. Again, think of that long, wide aisle. Think of that gigantic tabernacle. All Everything is pointing to that tiny white host. Now, I want to dive deeper now into the, the nitty-gritty of Baroque architecture. We discussed why it's important in that it is the, uh, the style of the bread of angels. Baroque is the architecture for the bread of angels. But I want to dive deeper into it. There are three primary hallmarks of Baroque architecture that make it so critical. Uh, first of all is the use of illusions, optical illusions especially. Optical illusions were used to produce effects that are both dramatic and gave a sense of motion and movement. We talked last week, Baroque is the style of movement. Think of the paintings and the sculptures and the windswept robes, right? So too, the, style, the architecture itself is also vibrating with movement. And there are several ways in which they go about doing this. First of all, we have grand staircases. We have incomplete architectural elements which disorient the eyes. Overhead sculptures that are positioned in such a way that they look like they're floating in the air. Uh, we see what are called Solomonic columns, which are those columns of the, the spirals, uh, again, giving that illusion of motion. Uh, the stairways, again, give the, give the appearance of different views from different levels and are used for dramatic um, rituals like the, Eucharist, uh, like the Eucharistic liturgy. John Green himself, in his Crash Course European History, puts it perfectly, quote, John Lorenzo Bernini produced dramatic effects, for example, at the piazza in front of St. Peter's Basilica, 
It features massed columns, which produce a dramatic setting for papal ritual, unquote. And I'm sure we're all familiar with that image of St. Peter's and those giant columns. He's absolutely right. Again, the objective of Baroque, uh, Baroque is the everyman style. It's not meant to be eruditic and, you know, far re far um, and stoic. It's meant to be something that each of us can uh, can see and we can get it and understand, even if we were illiterate. And that's why there's such a, an emphasis on drama, motion, and theater. Two are domes. Domes are deeply symbolic. You see domes used more so in Byzantine uh, Byzantine churches, right? Eastern Catholic churches. Uh, and they're beautiful, right? And they're uh, they are meant to represent the sky. They're meant to represent the literally the dome of heaven that our Lord made on the first day. And because of that, because they uh, are deeply symbolic and they represent the dome of the sky, their interiors, the interiors of these domes were often painted to look like the sky. They were filled with angels and sunbeams and, you know, and, and the glory of, of, of the vision of heaven. But at this point in time, going back to the domes, that I want to tell a, um, a, a true story. This is a personal anecdote. As many of you know, I'm a part of the, I go, I'm a parishioner at St. Joseph's Shrine in Detroit. It's an apostle of an apostolate of the Institute of Christ, the King Sovereign Priest. And I first encountered them a number of years ago uh, through a, how shall we say, in a, a series of events that the Archdiocese of Detroit puts on, and they still put on, uh, called the Mass Mob. It's a way, it was a way to showcase the historic churches in Detroit. It's exceptional if you're ever in the area. Or maybe your diocese themselves does something like this, but I digress. In any case, um, at the time, there was a priest uh, of the Institute of Christ the King who was the pastor of the church named Kenneth Michael Stein. And if Kenneth said, if you're listening to this, I want to thank you from the depths of my heart uh, for being this source of inspiration and for really changing my life, truly. But I digress. In any case, after, after Mass on one particular Sunday, my father and I and a group of several other people uh, went with Kenneth Stein. And Kenneth Stein gave us a tour of St. Joseph's Church. And he kind of gave us kind of the 411, kind of the basics of architecture. And if my memory serves correct, he says this. He, he said, uh, Kenneth Stein said that there are two major styles of architecture, Romanesque and Baroque. What's the difference? Romanesque is soaring. It is tall. Everything is rising with Baroque. Ro ro uh, I'm sorry, with Romanesque rather. Romanesque is soaring. It is rising. Romanesque architecture is soaring, it's rising, uh, everything is rising in Baroque, in Romanesque, because Romanesque represents humanity's response to God. We rise to God. Baroque architecture is the exact opposite. Baroque is descending, it is oppressive, it is condescending, everything is downward. Why? Because it, it represents God's response to man. God descends from uh, on high and becomes like us in all ways but sin. He descends into our lives just as we ascend to him. It's God, Baroque is God's response to man. Then, And those are, again, the words of Canon Michael Stein of the Institute of Christ the King, Sovereign Priest. I want to build off of this concept, right? The idea that Baroque is God's response to man. I would venture to argue that Baroque, very much Baroque architecture specifically, very much epitomizes the incarnation. Remember that, right? The incarnation. Think of those words of, of St. John the Evangelist. Et verbum caro factum est, et habitavit in nobis. And the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. Uh, Baroque represents how the divine majesty in the incarnation descended from on high and takes on human flesh and becomes like us in every way except sin. 
It represents how he even to, in every single day and at every single mass ascends from on high in the transubstantiation in the form of bread and wine. Baroque very much is a microcosm for God's response to us. And finally, the emphasis on acoustics. Baroque churches are unique in that they were very much specifically designed for preaching. Uh, there was a, a grand dome, you know, and prominent peers uh, in the course of the grand dome, right? I want to build off the dome for a minute. was placed, the dome was traditionally placed uh, right at the center between the transept and the nave. Why? Why was it placed at that central location? Because that's where the pulpit was located, and it could kind of produce this, you know, amplification effect. Remember, they didn't have microphones back then. And the Jesuits relied very heavily on acoustics because, again, they want uh, the, the faithful to very hear, clearly hear the words of the sermon. They, uh, uh, and, but furthermore, yes, the preaching element is important, but there's also a deeper reason. There's a deeper reason why I would argue the Jesuits placed such a heavy emphasis on acoustics and making sure everyone could hear and making sure the dome was placed the right way and whatnot. Because they also loved music. And the Jesuits, remember, also used music, no different than art and architecture. Uh, they spearheaded the, the genesis of a musical revolution uh, to, again, fill the hearts of the faithful with, uh, with the glory of the divine. In fact, it's those very same compositions, those same exact Baroque compositions written by Jesuits uh, that still fill the ears of the faithful today. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about next week. Next week in our final installment of For the Love of the Liturgy, we're going to dive into Baroque music and how the Jesuits spearheaded Baroque music and why Baroque music is so important and why, how Baroque music still affects us today. Uh, that, again, concludes this week's edition of Everyday Ignatian. I want to thank each and every one of you for joining us today. A few announcements before we close. First and foremost, um, I, if you want to learn more about what it means to be an Ignatian and dive deeper into um, the Baroque style and dive deeper into how we can live an Ignatian lifestyle every single day, I invite you to visit my website. Again, the, the web address is Everyday ignatian.com literally again everydayignation.com again the link is in the show notes you'll find a whole smorgasbord of inf uh, information and resources at your disposal everything is total is completely there including the spiritual exercises which are there uh, the constitutions both in english and latin are also are there as well so on and so forth all the council trend as well is available too as a reminder, if you want to read that 13th session, which is on the Eucharist, it's at the bottom of this week's edition. That's the first piece. Second, if you uh, want to uh, join us next week or you want, you want to dive deeper and join us every single week, uh, we publish every week on Fridays at noon Rome time. We use Rome time as a common point of reference because I know there's so many of you from all over the world. So if you are a part of, if you're from the Eastern time zone of the United States, which I am, that will be 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you come to us internationally, and again, if you do, thank you very much for joining us. And I'll be keeping you and yours in my prayers. Um, uh, if you could, that will be again noon Rome time. Finally, but certainly not least, uh, know that I'll be praying for each and every one of you. And I'll ask you, please also keep me and keep every day Ignatian in your prayers too, so that we can be the, uh, uh, the best that we can be in our own lives and really uh, sort of the heights that our Lord wants us to soar to. That, once again, uh, concludes this week's uh, edition. Thank you very much for joining us. 
and have a blessed week. God bless you all. Thank you again for joining us for this edition of Everyday Ignatian. We always close each episode by reciting a prayer called the Sushipe. It was written by St. Ignatius of Loyola himself five centuries ago. If you are not familiar with the Sushipe, that is okay because I have included the link in the show notes. If you have not done so already, I invite you to go into the show notes and open up the link so that we can pray together. Thank you again for joining us, and remember, quodcunque dixerit vobis facite. Do whatever he tells you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and possess. You have given all to me. To you, O Lord, now I return it. All is yours. Dispose of me wholly according to your will. Give me only your love and your grace, for this is enough for me. Amen. Sacred Heart of Jesus, have mercy on us. All holy angels, pray for us. Society of Jesus, pray for us. Jesus, meek and humble of heart, make our hearts like unto thy heart. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.